I felt like it was a liberal oh fantasy, like a retelling of of an, of an old point. story. Yeah, it but is, it was like it is a, a bit fantasy. Like, That's what makes it so much fun. Yeah, but a fantasy of the like the the cinema, the no, liberal no. cinema. That's not true. Do you know what it is? It's about it. It is nostalgic, and it, it, and it's but it's not nostalgic for the 1960s or old cinema. It's nostalgic for the 1990s and was still a thing. And you could make films like Tarantino used to make. So the, the, the metaphor of the 60s is used to tell his own story about his own filmmaking and the, the times when it worked. So everything to it points to 1990s filmmaking and, and Tarantino's uh, idea of how art could be could work and could be meaningful. So I, I think that this kind of direct reading of his oh, he just wants to be in like the 1960s and blah 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 it's just a retelling no no it's, it's a real artistic exploration of the loss of um, an artistic form mm. that's, a, that's, that's a very that's a very good take I haven't heard mm. that actually and it the whole thing makes a lot why, more sense. This is, why, this is why I get so frustrated with people just completely just take him at face value all the time he's, but he's mm. the only director who Makes it makes a point of not being taken at face value. I've had several, so I think the, the best moment was when I honestly came. Hello, hello. It's movie awards season, so it's Alf Hibunga Bunga's annual film episode. Uh, this is Alex Hochuli. I'm um I'm I'm wearing my tightest teeniest little red dress, the most revealing thing I could find for, for this red carpet. Uh, George Hoare is here. George Hoare is dressed like a uh, 15th century Florentine merchant. Uh, Phil Cunliffe is sad that he's not been nominated for anything and has turned up just in a Hawaiian shirt and what looks like boxer shorts. Uh, but of course, the star of the show is our guest, Marin Tom, who uh, is dressed up like a uh, big green and gold present, complete with an oversized bow, and she has her little sidekick pug dog with her which is wearing a little <laughs> valentino couture number uh welcome everyone uh so this is our third film uh episode in a row or rather the third year in a row that we do a film episode with marin at this time of year um if you've listened to the previous episodes you'll know that we don't think and certainly marin doesn't think that the oscars are particularly important but uh, every episode needs a hook and this is ours so this is when we do our yearly film episode uh Listener, you may not know this, you might not be aware of it, but the three of us, Alex, George, and Phil, take turns in producing episodes, and this one is George, so uh, I'll pass it over to him. Uh, thanks, thanks for that. <laughs> Fan fantastic introduction. Um, yeah, so I guess just just to kick things off, I think we, we might have done this last year. Um, so what was everyone's worst film of the year? I think it's always good to start with what was uh, annoying, disappointing, uh, frustrating in in the cinema. So, Marin, you're you're the you're the the guest of honor, I think, as, as Alex <laughs> described. Shall, shall I kick it off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. All right. Um, so, the worst film. I don't know. Um, I don't. Know, is this like is this like the cats question? Where I have to talk about cats? You know, the film yeah. that, that disappointed everybody. And we should have a buzzer, the cat buzzer. But no, <laughs> um, what was that the worst well, film before this year? Did no, I don't, the thing is, you know, how, it was pretty bad and it was uh, freaking out. I was more surprised that people were freaked out by it. Mm. It, it, it is a pretty freaky idea. Um, but honestly, why is it bad? You know, it's a cheesy film and criticizing cheesy films for being cheesy is a bit pointless, in my opinion. Mm. So, so bad for me is something that is disappointing or pretentious. And for me, I was disappointed in things like uh, Jojo Rabbit. Hated that mm. one. And I, I wanted to like it because, you know, I, I thought Taika Waikiki is, uh, you know, charming guy, funny guy. But I, I watched it and it was just, it didn't work, you know. Mm. <laughs> Being German, I might be oversensitive about yeah. this. But I don't think it is. I, I mean, it is just so whimsical, and and it was basically Wes Anderson doing Auschwitz, and it just didn't yes, work. Yes, yes, good take. That's yeah, I thought the same. And it, it and and even like the the kind of personal story, not just the, the the Nazi jokes that didn't land, but also the the personal story about the kid and the mom and the, the Jewish girl. Mm. You know, this this kind of whimsicalness about this that if all kids 
had only just a cool mom and a multicultural upbringing, Nazism wouldn't have happened. And you just go, no, 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 that's not how it happens. <laughs> it's so, not because they didn't have like a cool a multicultural upbringing. No, I, 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 I agree. I think it was, it had some, some good bits in it, Jojo Rabbit, but some bits that, that didn't work. It was also, we went to see it at the cinema and there was this guy who was laughing really loudly at all like the wrong bits, just all like the, oh, and it, you know, there's a, a, a an imaginary friend, Hitler. And this guy was like finding it the funniest thing ever. Um, anyway, so Alex, uh, um, shall I sort of ask you what your worst film was to go on from that interruption? You can ask me anything you like. Um, I think that's fine. I, I will <laughs> ask you what your worst. So, um, Alex, what about you? What was the, the, what was the worst well, film you saw this year? You know, actually, I, I can't say to have seen anything which, like, was horrible. But then I'm, I'm also very picky and don't just watch films willy-nilly. So I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't end up watching that many films um, because I'm always scared of watching something bad. That said, I think probably the two things which I found disappointing were um, <clears throat> two, I guess, kind of TV movies, both codas to series uh, which uh, I I think didn't really need making. So you had El Camino, which was Netflix's coda to Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. and you had the Deadwood movie, which was also coda to uh, the excellent, really superlative Deadwood, which actually finished in uh, the mid two thousands. And both of those, I mean, one you see them very obviously driven by a logic of TV um, and not cinema, and therefore it's kind of seems to be much more obviously driven by kind of commercial needs. Um, and I guess in general, they're just, it, maybe it's something that we're going to talk about in a bit, but it, it, it's like the Marvel movies as well, that it's already, mm-hmm. it's for established fans. You know that you've got a fan base out there and you're just feeding the fans the slop that they want. Um, here, take it and be happy with it. Uh, I personally was happy with the Deadwood one because I love Deadwood and any more Deadwood is good for me. On the other hand, it just felt like yet another episode at an hour and a half long. Mm. That didn't enrich my life in any way, and I had so long forgotten about Deadwood that I didn't really need that closure. Um, and and Breaking Bad, likewise, you know. Um, yeah, no, I think I think both of the the two of them. I think we'll definitely come on to talk about ideas of um, why why there's so many um, films that are part of of series and and just do a lot of fan service rather than constructing a new uh, universe. Phil, how how about you? What was your least favorite film of the year uh you'll probably be a toss-up between ad astra and joker um it's a tough call i'm with uh, you on ad astra yeah yeah it was i mean uh, i don't even yeah i don't know man they were both kind of so disappointing um in different ways ad astra was it had some great moments in fact a bit like joker they both had great moments but the overall um kind of overall conceit was just so kind of predictable and boring it felt like it was just going through the motions of the film just to drag you along to the kind of completely predictable end in both cases um i think probably ad astra yeah i think probably ad astra was worse Mm. um brad pitt travels to the end of the solar system to resolve his um to resolve his issues with his dad um the only thing which i thought was good about it actually was cheaper than um, therapy i'll tell you that though (laughs) <laughs> well it was good. i don't even know what that means um but the um the what was it what was i going to say before i was interrupted um uh, i don't know you'll have to tell us yeah it was their portrayal of space travel mm. portrayal of space travel kind of um instead of the um image of clean efficiency and a glittering um kind of transcendent future it was all um all the astronauts kind of prayed consistently they were muttering to their patron saints all the time which was yeah. a nice touch i thought and also um the cheesy kind of kitschy lunar moon base where it's all kind of um it's all uh, you know kind of crappy little shops selling you tourist hat um people wandering around in stupid alien costumes um, all the big brands have their have their little kind of centers on the lunar base, and I thought it was just a really, um, really excellent, depressing portrayal of what the future of space travel is going to be like when Elon Musk um, succeeds <laughs> in conquering yeah. the solar system, because <laughs> yeah. there is no, um, there is no, um, you know, there is no uh, proletarian state to do it for us. Vision, a vision of our space travel future. Um, 
Well, for me, I, I didn't see cats. I think Ricky Gervais's um, appropriated quote that it was the worst thing to happen to cats since dogs um, was enough of a good line. That, and what he said I, about James Gordon. Well, no, but I mean specifically about about that that um, that film. Um, but the the most disappointing film for me was was nineteen seventeen. Um, not just because it was not about the Russian Revolution. I did know that um, going in. But um, yeah, but it was supposed to be this incredible film with great cinematography. Um, but actually, I found it quite shallow. I found like there, I felt there wasn't really that much character development. And I know this might put me um, in the minority because I think it, it I think it got 10 Oscar nominations and a lot of people really enjoyed it. But actually, I thought that for all the, the tracking um because it's, it's supposed to be one long tracking shot or edited to look like this there was not really a sense of the epic scale of, of the war there was only one really good shot that i thought was amazing where it zooms out and he's running along along the side of the trench um and i thought well you know compare it to some of the other great war films and you don't it, it just doesn't measure up it doesn't have the same sense of um <clears throat> These, these big battles if you're going to have a the, the the camera in quite close on these these characters then they need to have quite an interesting relationship and that's not really possible under the under the conditions in which it's shot and the story's told i think something like journey's end which is, is, a, is was much better and that if that had been done with one shot that would have been very good um but i guess marin to sort of take a step back from all of this were any of these any interestingly bad films um in 2019 any anything that really sort of represented something about cinema something well not i, I, I really loved i really liked uh, um 1917 i thought it was quite artistic and it really worked that the uh, there was no actual story it was just pure being somewhere and it's just can i, can I, I just was, jump in on something actually yeah. i wanted to ask you this as well and and george as well for that matter i'm not a particularly like a war film aficionado but I wonder, I mean, can you do anything new with a war film, especially one about wars whose story have been told a million times over, be it Vietnam, World War One, or World War Two? Like, and, and does 1917 do something new? Because I, I haven't watched it. Um, I don't know, because I'm not, I'm, I don't care about history that much, I must say. I'm not a history fan. <laughs> so, so I don't care if... if it's all about now. It's all about know, right now, right here. <laughs> so, so the idea of um, a film depicting... Uh, a historical event, I find that quite boring. So if, if you want to talk about the Vietnam War or the, the, the Iraq War or whatever kind of war, I think it's far more interesting to um, uh, do something with this, you know, the, 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 rather than the stories. Not, of not, make, a, not make a war movie? <laughs> yes, you know, or just, just make a, uh, something else about it. And I think the, 1917 was not about the First World War. I don't think it was. It was just a very, very interesting story about a person being with himself in, a, in an adverse situation and mm. choosing that background was it was a dramaturgic choice so rather than about being the, about being uh, about the, the first world war it was about something completely different but of course you know this being england and they love costumes so everything's about its own uh self-reflection so but i think the artistic thing was that it wasn't but wouldn't that be every war film every war film is um about um some kind of um, individual discovery or transformation in adverse circumstances. Yeah, That's just so, a real so, film. I, I think so. And I think one of the best four films is the first Rambo film. Mm, yeah. Which is not at the front. That's about, that's about the after effects of, of war yeah, more so, than so, anything. Yeah, yeah so it, it's far more, I, I thought it was one, it's one of the best sort of films about war. You know, rather anyway, than somebody in the church. Okay, yeah. Um, sorry, sorry, I, I, I should. I should um, no, no, no. It's my fault. I, I should bear responsibility for for the conversation going. I'm responsible. But any whatever. films yeah. bad as representation yeah. in wider cinema? I think there's two films that I would want to mention. I think the first one is It Two. You know, the, the second version of it, which I thought was also really disappointed by because it was absolutely mm. not scary, and the story was bland, and uh, everybody was so disappointed in this because the source material is absolutely fantastic. How can you make a not scary film and, mm. you know, these kind of really boring characters who've got nothing to do with one another? And I think there is something in it in that uh, this this kind of 
making it successful at all costs and inoffensive at all costs. It's just completely took away somebody who could direct an art, make, make the make the art happen in this film. And they mm. just wouldn't let it happen. Same with cats. I think cats could have been absolutely freaky, but in a good sense, if they mm. not let like journeyman uh, director at it, but somebody who's got a freaky artistic vision, maybe fewer people would have watched it, but it might have been mm. a bit interesting. But I think the most interesting bad film is the David Copperfield one, the Iannucci David Copperfield one. Right. Which I really hated. <laughs> and not... I can I come to the color blindness in a minute, but uh, it was just completely again whimsical. It was um, everybody said, "Oh, it's a really new interpretation of Dickens." It's not. It's just the whimsical characters being whimsical, mm-hmm. and uh, a really boring, uh, real realist interpretation of it. And then it comes its great moment is this kind of color blind casting where every liberal is sort of having wet dreams about at night. Beautiful. <laughs> And David and and Iannucci does something really interesting, because to not make uh, minorities look uh, conspicuous in the in the on the screen, you have to overcast basically. Mm. Every second or third character has to be visually a minority, so they don't look tokenistic, so that it looks normalized, and that <laughs> worked sort of against itself. So that by by making it look um, absolutely colorblind. It was, it was just become about race constantly. Mm. So, and I thought, okay, maybe the time where we can actually think about colorblind casting is absolutely over in a world that still understands anti-racism through racial thinking. Interesting. Um, and also overemphasized that everything else was not uh, artistic. So everything else was realist, you know, all the costumes and the setting, you know, uh, all the other characters were as described, you know, men were men, women were women, th- thin person, uh, people were thin people, and old people were old people, you know, so everything else had to be period, except for mm. the race thing. So and I thought, but, but, that, but that only was a, a symptom of that, the whole thing didn't actually know what kind of story it wanted to tell, it just wanted to show characters mm-hmm. being, being Dickensian or something. I think this is an Armando Yanucci film, you said. I'm, I'm not, I yeah. haven't watched it. And, I mean, he is a sometimes brilliant satirist. Uh, and did he bring any of that um, sort of satirical uh, vision to David Copperfield in any way? I mean, or was... Well, yeah, I'm because... always doubting Armando Yanucci because, you know, because he's done all these great English <laughs> comedy mm. things like Brass Eye and so on. But um, even in Brass Eye or the day-to-day, there was always an element of you know, a kind of middle class looking down on the mob. And I think that was the Emmanuel Iannucci element in it. Mm. Because everything he's done without people like Chris Morris or so, I think has has been quite subpar in that that's, that's kind of my would... impression too, yeah. he Like all yeah. the subversive mm. stuff uh, it gets lost when someone like Chris Morris isn't really? involved. I mean, I, yeah. I, dis- I disagree. I think the first two seasons of The Thick <sighs> of It and the Emmanuel Iannucci show um, are both are all very very good but i mean this this film's only just um only come out in the that. box office so exactly. i so think this is up for baftas but not oscars yeah so it's a, it's some live advice to, to listeners to, to not go and go and see it <laughs> well, um maybe maybe you 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 wank yourself silly over it i don't know loads of people seem to do it. there's a there's a great great maybe. big um <laughs> there's a great big um fan base for period drama it gives people comfort. It gives people a security. And you can be as liberal as you like. People love period dramas. You know, yeah. it, it, people always, you know, always who uh, um, get, get blamed to be right wing or, or uh, conservative because they long for like the past. But the people who want love period dramas are, are usually middle class liberals. Uh, the the favorite maybe being another example, but just m- maybe moving on to um to I guess something that we talked about last year and we, we didn't really um result I don't think was really resolved either way um so we talked uh, in our last Oscars episode about whether giving the lead times for kind of writing shooting producing releasing films and whether 2018 was the year when we finally had Trumpian cinema as a liberal cinema establishment if that's <laughs> what we could call it responded um to the election of Trump and do do you think that 2019 has has 
maybe um, realized this this idea of a kind of kind of cinema for a trumpian age or like a response to trump in cinematic terms um, i think i think it can not not be about the the, the zeitgeist so i i think and and because the zeitgeist is actually you know um being realized at the moment and what what happened last year was a kind of uh, last grasp of uh, the kind of uh, nothing is nothing to see here, you know. And I think this year's Oscars are far more exciting. It seems you know the last few years have been dominated by sort of rather boring films, um, you know, with Black Panther thrown in there as a token gesture. So it was usually about films about identity and suffering and how America is corrupt and doesn't do good capitalism. Um, so, I mean, this year there were films that are calculated to fit into this old raster, like I think Ad Astra is, or the Laundromat film on Netflix with, with Meryl Streep. Mm. Um, they could have easily not been nominated if that if this had been last year. But in this year, it seems like the big themes are back. And by big themes, I mean films that tackle historical perspectives as well as political realities. So uh, the establishment cry about deplorables and their backwardsness towards liberal values, that was somewhat rejected with this year's selections. So there was no films about intersubjective power struggles between whiny introverts or so, you know, it's like a star is born. And it mm. was films that explore how people live under conditions not of their own making. These films have been chosen and the whole list of best films falls under that category which is quite, quite new and exciting. I think everybody's more excited about the Oscars this year. Uh, and, um, and, and there are also films that have actually brought in far more money than the nominations mm. last year, except for Black Panther. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right. I, I definitely, so I saw A Hidden Life, this uh, long ter and depressing Terence Malick film. And I, I, I think a lot of the things that you said there really apply apply to that film and I was a bit worried at some points it was going to go into a very overtly let's let's take a kind of anti-fascist line and and link it to to Trump um but so I guess the um on the Oscar nominations specifically the best picture noms were Ford versus Ferrari The Irishman Jojo Rabbit Joker Little Women Marriage Story 1917 Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Parasite we've actually talked about a few of those films already but what do you think these um, nominations um, tell us about Hollywood as a whole. You said people are a bit more excited this this time. Uh, um, yeah, I think you know because the Oscars are basically the, the, the marketing tool for Hollywood, and so they're really good for analysing what mm. what the market values. And it's exactly this criticism that is picked up by postmodern uh, critics that the industry does not value, for example, women or black people, because the, the postmodern tactic of measuring inequality is through representation. So it is a representation of bodies divorced from idea that mm. is absolutely sufficient. And so and this, the representation of these bodies, they assume, bring with them lived experience as a kind of ersatz for real politics. So uh, capitalism loves this way of measuring inequality, because as long as inequality is structurally uh, structurally, it cannot be fundamentally changed. Mm. So last year's Oscars were very much dominated by the question of racial representation. And that is something the industry is really happy to to ponder about, anything that makes them relevant. So, you know, the Oscars so white and, and all the kind of uh, nominations last year and the Oscar winners were seen as a good marketing tool. Mm. So everybody can be seen aware of the privilege and all that kind of debate. And um, so this year is really interesting because what has happened is that Hollywood has sort of sniffed out the latest trend, like films that can look at the change that has happened in America, the kind of loss of an American belief in its own system. So mm -hmm. we have films that all speak of a breakdown of an old order that might have not been perfect, but it, well, at least it was cohesive. So mm -hmm. The Irishman takes on the history of America where, where people have to, where you have to look after your own and getting organized about this. And this is shared by the mafia as well as labor unions. They've got this by bizarre history together. Yes. And, and Martin Scorsese is really interesting yeah. bit and how this, this kind of, um, even self-reliance has broken up. You know, you can't even rely on, on a kind of community that you can build up yourself. But also, you know, the Joker where the state has failed to be there for people and deprives them of basic dignity. 
yeah, yeah. It drives them to act out and you know all of them even marriage story which i thought was quite good um you know it's a breakdown of of, of, a, of a system marriage once upon a time is the breakdown of the old order parasite is about the the, the people living under an order which they cannot take part in so there's mm-hmm. a there's a that's a thread that that's also it all seems to weave them together in this kind of um recognition that something old has died but mm. you know the, the, something new hasn't been born maybe the old so, uh, saying so so maybe it's a maybe it's a sort of nostalgia for the uh the period of capitalist realism or the, the, the end of the history period but alex you had you had something more substantive on this well no i mean it's funny the the crumbling of the old order and nothing new has emerged i think what struck me about the oscar nominee the, excuse me well specifically the best picture nominees is that they all felt like something uh, like uh, evocative of an inability to say anything new because you had The Irishman, which I felt like I'd seen before because it felt like many other Scorsese films, but a little bit more uh, muted than than previous iterations of that kind of story. Joker was just a faithful rendition of a Scorsese film. Um, Jojo Rabbit felt like something like The Great Dictator or like Look Who's Back or any other film that kind of tries to kind of satirize Hitler in a quirky manner, but it with with the same feel of any uh, like Taika Waititi film, which Marini already mentioned, but yeah, I also thought it felt like uh, Wes Anderson uh, does Hitler, and I also agree that it completely uh, failed as satire. It was weird because it kind of neither diminished Hitler to pathetic levels as some of those other satires do, nor made him seem an actual threat or warned about him. It just made him kind of there as a sort of object of humor complete kind of disconnected from history it was very weird um and then you also had i mean i I found the kind of repetition present even in some of these other ones maybe in less obvious ways but marriage story i really liked but it felt like i'd seen it before and it felt like an updated kramer versus kramer um and then you had once upon a time in hollywood which i really liked but that was literally about other films and it kept sliding between different films and genres the entire time and it was about Hollywood as well um, and Hollywood loves films about Hollywood the fact that it was self-conscious about it made it probably better than those other ones which were just kind of going through the motions either uh, plumbing its own back catalog in the in the case of the Scorsese film or imitating Scorsese like Joker did or Jojo Rabbit imitating the various ones that I mentioned so I don't know it, it felt a lot like yes perhaps some reflection on American history and the crumbling of an old order, but only in, in its kind of artistic language, only be able to mine its own kind of back catalogue without any being able to do anything new formally or, you know, cinematically. Yeah, um, I, th- I think the... Yeah, I, I guess maybe to to put this into a bit of context of, of film criticism more generally. I mean, this is this is a a critique that has has been, I guess, emerging. Where's where's the the, the shock of the new in cinema as as in other cultural forms? But Marin, I think one thing we we've talked about previously is whether political representation comes into uh, comes to stand in for aesthetic criticism, i.e., kind of a film is is good quote unquote good if it represents certain certain sort of underrepresented or marginalized communities identities or individuals rather than being judged in more formal terms perhaps in some ideas of around innovation or kind of thematic or formal uh, newness as some of the things that alex was was saying i mean does does mainstream film criticism sort of has it continued this trend um or is there a bit of a backlash against this kind of representational um criticism which i think you touched on earlier a little bit I think, uh, yes, I think that, well, it all sort of con- was a continuous sort of um, taken by, by critics and the best examples against a critical backlash um, uh, are the, the actual critics say, talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Joker. You know, immediately when both the trailers for both films came out, they were immediately taken down by big papers like a Guardian or the New Yorker for promoting this kind of regressive longing for the past where men were men and racism and pussy grabbing were just harmless fun. So, I mean, only this week, the, the Saturday Night Live, they made fun about how all the Oscar nominations were films about white male rage and men being mm-hmm. angry about their loss of privilege. So they, they also picked up the, the notion that 
all these films are about a loss of a of a coherent order, but but they say it all. Oh, they're just longing for the bad old days, yes, rather than mm. people actually desperate for for a for a framework that they that they can function in. Mm. You know that that they they kind of liberal answer that you can just you know be your identity and everybody is uh, aware that, that that doesn't work for people it, it's not part of their reality so so i mean we could sort of say it's almost like there's a neoliberal order breakdown cinema that there is a kind of nostalgia for this Ooh. this um these fixed okay. certainties of the recent um past but just i guess to, to widen it out and and bring in bring in phil as well who's been um it's been quiet uncharacteristically. Um, what 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 was everyone's overall experience of of film in in 2019? Because I think that that point of, about the Oscar, the, the best picture nominee nom, nominees being kind of <clears throat> this breakdown of a, of an order is something which I hadn't really um, I hadn't really experienced personally. But yeah, Phil, what, what do you what do you think? What was your cinema experience in 2019 like? I guess it was better than um, better than previous year. Uh, mm. It was, uh, I guess, I mean, but only measured. I mean, not measured by any kind of sophisticated standard, perhaps, as much as the fact that there were more films I watched that I enjoyed, or that made me, um, you know, that made me think, I suppose, a bit more. Um, though I have to say, I guess also like the Netflix thing finally happened as well. Um, I've realised, like, I've started watching films at home um that mm. normally i would go to the cinema for which is an odd kind of it's an odd kind of shift and uh, i guess i don't know i felt like i was maybe going to resist it so I, d- I think that's probably my um that's probably my experience of 2019 not much to add to it apart from to say it was it was better but i mean i'm looking you know i mean um I think this year is also there's better movies to come yet. We're talking about a bit about this earlier, but um, I don't know. Maybe things are getting better for Hollywood, from my kind of partial perspective. Well, I think the 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 draw of being able to watch a film that everyone's talking about on Netflix on on your laptop or on TV at home is is, I mean, it is it is quite a quite a pull, particularly um, given that you I think many people are consuming more quote unquote prestige TV um in in a similar format because of the quality of of, of the latter but alex what 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 about you well, 2019 I, cinema 2019 cinema um i have to say as i said earlier like i didn't watch that many kind of films that came out last year um kind of fairly picky about them and and wait for like a really strong recommendation of a film um, and so I actually ended up watching kind of lots of recent films from maybe the past decade or even much older than that, which I had maybe missed out. Um, one of which made me think uh, quite a lot about the point that was made a little bit earlier about the lag t- lag time, um, which was Hell or High Water, which is on Netflix, which is why I actually ended up watching it. Uh, because if it wasn't there, it probably wouldn't have occurred to me to, to watch it. It's something that I missed when it came out mm. in 2016. And it's a film which I watched. I didn't know it when it had uh, come out. And I was like, wow, this really feels like a film made in 2009, 2010, 2011 uh, about the global financial crisis, about home. It's got a backdrop in kind of West Texas of home foreclosures, the decline of small towns. It's actually a really excellent film, um, but which oddly felt out of time coming out in 2016 because, you know, that was like Trump or various other things happening uh, and not the kind of global financial crisis, which all those films that came out in the wake of with, uh, of it, which talked about economics in, in scare quotes, um, you know, had been kind of left behind at, in the earlier part of the decade. So I thought, it, you know, th- that's that's one kind of, I don't know, funny thing about the, the kind of lag time in, in films. Mm. Um, the other thing that, that I just wanted to highlight um was my two standout films were not hollywood films um because i'm so chic like that uh, yeah. the the two standout films were bakurao which i don't think has come out in the uk and probably not in the us either but is brazil's best film of the year um and it's probably it's the best film that's come out of brazil in the past you know 5 years or so um and it's really excellent it's sort of a tarantino-esque i mean that's the way it's been described um uh, but, uh, you know, a kind of revenge fantasy, but with sci-fi elements that takes place in uh, the backwoods of northeastern Brazil. 
And it's really brilliant. I would encourage everyone to go see it as soon as it comes out, wherever you are. Uh, and the other was Parasite. Um, and I, Parasite's a film that's going to stick with me for a long time. I've already seen it twice. <laughs> and you know, I think both of these are remarkable for being social films, in quotation marks, that have something to say, but obviously uh, issue any sort of moral simplicity. They both you know, tarry with moral complexity. They're willing to take on, they, you know, both stand, uh, speak for, let's say, the common man in that sense. They're very democratic films, but both uh, try to complexify the kind of the actions and behaviors of people and don't don't set up angels versus demons. Um, yeah, well, not, well, both sure are formally we've... interesting. So I think that, that those are very yeah. worthwhile highlighting. Yeah, I'm not sure we've seen films like that in the last, um, last couple of years. So... Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I mean, it's hardly maybe an original point, but this idea of sequelitis. So, I mean, in Hollywood cinema, it's now reached this almost kind of grotesque level where it it basically completely um, comes to define mainstream output. I mean, in 2019, the top 10 highest grossing films worldwide, of which the top nine all gross more than a billion, were all part of an ongoing franchise or a shared universe. They were a prequel, sequel, remake reboot spin-off you know and stuff like that and i think there's there's something interesting going on here there's so in his book digi modernism adam kirby social critics talks about this endlessness and onwardness and i think that's a good phrase and also this kind of um characteristic earnestness and i think if you went to see all of those blockbusters and i think i did i think i did see almost all of them um that's comes to define or that was my experience of, of most most of the films that i saw was kind of just an endlessness and onwardness why, why do these stories not finish why there's why is there an, another kind of chapter i mean um yeah maron what about you 2019 i mean maybe even in in the mm-hmm. context of of the you know these these best films of the century um yeah. so far polls which came out at the end of of 2019 because we've had obviously two two decades, depending on how you count the decades, but I think most people would agree, two decades of the 21st century now. It, it, it sounds sexier this way, yeah. So two decades, we've already had them. Yeah. So um, so 2019, I think, um, as I said, it, I think there's some, something has happened in the, in the film and uh, movie world where I came out of the cinema after watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I thought, I felt this moment of relief, and I thought, my God, this was a real fantastic cinematic experience which i have not had for a long time so i thought that this is the sign of something good mm. and then i watched joker which had you know wasn't the best film but i thought it was fantastically directed the direction of it was 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 i think we should get best director maybe not best film but best director and parasite was super interesting i thought it was basically a brecht play you know, the, yeah. the, the, the Kim family is basically uh, uh, the, the Peachum family who, who um, you know, disguise themselves in the roles that the capitalists want them to see as. <laughs> you know, and so, so it's, it's basically, it's just Brecht, pure. Mm. Yeah, so, so I thought something has happened. And, uh, and I th- because you were talking about this kind of drawn out, feeling that especially in the past 10 years about nothing actually happening in cinema and all these marvel films that are completely forgettable which i think the the, the soundtracks of these films is is the best indicator for this nobody can remember the soundtracks of any of the films i think the only Good one point. that is a bit memorable is the Galax- uh, guardians of the galaxy but everything else you know for a big adventure thing it has no identity they have no they've, they've got no connection but also um, so looking at the and uh, looking at like the sort of top twenty, and I was quite shocked when I when I sort of went through them and I felt something and I was reminded of like this old joke I once I used to do that that I don't listen to music uh, new music in after two thousand and three or something, and mm-hmm. and I I was thinking about this because I thought it's not that new music cannot be good. But that it lacks a coherent cultural framework in which can it can mean something. Yeah. 
mm. before that, like from Bowie to punk to rap to Britpop. These maybe songs... you, but maybe it's you who likes the cultural framework. How do you know? <laughs> yes, I know, but maybe I'm just picky. But I think I mean, these you songs brought that are... to light. You brought that to light really well, actually, when you were talking about you know the the event that most marked the last 30 years since 1989, uh, like episode 100, which I you know you were talking about uh, rave music, techno in kind of early yeah. 90s yeah, yeah. Germany, and that really captured yeah. it. Uh, and you're right, it, it lacks that today. And yeah, the kind of... And yeah, because, you know, if if you look at these kind of tw- top 20 lists and you could think, mm. oh, they're okay, but they're not films that where you just think, they're wow, they're life-changing. Yes? Yeah, and, I mean, but, I mean everything... If it's the BBC list or, or the, mm. the, the Sight and Sound list or the, the um, Guardian list, I mean, they're all... You just got... <laughs> and what all seems to be missing from the films, there are a lot of good films that exist but they exist by themselves then in a world that shares visions about what it means to be human and this is quite existential for art to mm -hmm. be meaningful and now everything means the same and so it only means for itself and that is yeah i think i have a i think i have a i have a serious and a facetious point here i think that the facetious point is that you know whenever you look back and at these sort of lists you're like oh i think Film was all. Film was much better. Music was much better when, when you know, when I was younger. I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't like anything that's that's come out recently. Um, but maybe there is a serious like explanation of this that if you do have a culture produced at the end of history, then mm. it doesn't have. It's a culture without history. It doesn't have the the reference required um, yeah. to I mean, to make it meaningful and to tie to to kind of grander meta narratives or grander ideas of progress of of history. Um, of all of these things, which 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 kind of give some backdrop and some some meaning to some of the the stories that are told. Yeah, you can look at things like like punk or so. These a lot of these songs are not very good, but they are more than their own parts. Mm. Yes, they they relate to a greater yeah. narrative, and that makes them interesting. That's make them arty. You know, yeah. it doesn't have to be you know in itself good, but it has to be part of something more meaningful that what is meaningful to people this is why we go back to them this is mm. how they become classics mm. and looking at these kind of top 20 lists from the past years you think oh they're good films they're good films but you just wouldn't put them on again you go you go to other films for that so i just had so, a thing that, that like a, really provoked me uh you saying that Marin, that these films used to be part of something, you know, they used to be part of some subculture, they used to be a part of some political thrust or some cultural attitude that you could identify. And it's true, you watch a film, you're like, wow, that really feels like a real 70s film because of disco or whatever, and you don't have that today. But it's interesting to connect that to the point that George made about, uh, what was it, endlessness and uh, how did you put it, George? And would it's, it's not it's not my phrase, I wish I wish it were, um, and endlessness and onwardness. Right, which it feels like these films, especially the kind of Marvel films or whatever, are they are part of something, but they're, in a way they're part of everything. Like there's no, you know, it's just this uh, endless stretching of the Marvel universe, which you can plug into as if it were like a Twitter stream where you log onto Twitter and you catch the stream as it is right then, and then you unplug. And it's very easy, right? It's very undemanding because you don't have to learn kind of the rules of that universe that's been created. You just plug in and plug out whenever you want. Yeah, um, it's the infinite scroll of movie watching. Right, yeah, that's a, that's a, good, <sighs> that's a good phrase, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't, uh, yeah, we can't really say anything more on that topic because that phrase has <laughs> captured it perfectly. Um, but so maybe to move on to some points or a question around technology. I mean, we talked about the Irishman um previously i think it's um featured in a lot of best of year polls um marin do you think this is do you think we're going to see a lot more films uh, like this in in the in the coming years so this kind of a film that's planned and, and shot um to be released on streaming channels so that it looks good it, it works on a laptop it works on a tablet or a, maybe not on a phone but on a, on a on a screen at home um i think it will be because netflix has got a really good business model they, 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 they are for, they basically, the business model is to create content. And that's, I think, capitalism is best if you want to see it that way. Basically, they just indiscriminately do produce content. And Martin Scorsese would not have been able to do The Irishman without Netflix. And I think it, 
people say say it's too long and you know don't give the artists too much freedom but I think it's about it's a meandering film about time dissolving you know uh, Mm. time passing it needs this time to for 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 the story to unravel and for people to unravel and then at the end there's there's nothing left so I think I massively enjoyed it I mean I I was in a weird situation of having listened to the audiobook um after uh, sustaining an, an, an injury cycling and, and being <laughs> be, yeah really being off work and listening to a lot of a uh, lot of audiobooks um and I thought it was I mean this is one thing that I don't think we've seen as much of as I hope that we will is using Netflix to to kind of I don't know to to invent a bit formally i.e to have some some films that don't have to I guess do the things that you would expect if you were to go to the cinema to see a film I think it's quite noticeable a lot of Netflix kind of um, episodes like uh, multi-episode TV shows they don't really mm. they're, they're, they're still 25 you know 22 and a half minutes or 45 or 55 minutes long like it's only master of none that that decided to have like or that, that I know of that decided to have a lot shorter a lot longer episodes depending on the story that need to be needed to be told but I mean isn't that something that Netflix can offer or streaming services in general can offer a director is like okay we need content we'll give you some money just do whatever you like and you don't even need to so please people are going to see it at the cinema because yeah. people aren't going to do yeah, that. I think I think they even this year they've, they've they've budgeted like billions of dollars for basically they get directors and just do whatever you can you know so they they give them a lot of artistic freedom and Netflix is a really don't forget cinema tickets are really expensive and a Netflix subscription is something that everybody has sort of access to at the moment you know you can so somebody can log into Netflix films anywhere. So, so the, yeah. the people who watch Netflix films are, are much bigger than the numbers of people who watch cinema films at the moment. So, uh, yeah. So the, I don't think the Scorsese's Irishman would have had this big an audience. And it was. It was a lot of people watched it um, in the cinema. So to talk about some some other specific, well, I guess maybe that's talking more about technology generally uh, generally than the Irishman specifically um but a couple of films that I, that I wanted to talk about specifically <laughs> the first one was uh, was uncut gems um so did you share adam sandler's he was very sad that uncut gems wasn't nominated for oh, he's a... always sad to be not nominated and <laughs> um, that's the... the sadness of adam sandler i'm sure he's going to get an oscar when he's 90 you know people just pat him on the bag you know that's just when people this... just this time um, was he right to be sad? Should 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 this film have been uh, nominated for something? I've only seen parts of it because it's only out on Netflix here tomorrow. It's not out yet. Ah, well, I mean, I personally, I felt that it was an absolutely fantastic film, but I some I didn't actually think he was personally that that, that good in he, it. He's, um, he's not. He's not very good. I don't think you need to whisper that. I think our, our listeners might already have defined that. Um, but actually, so one film though we do need to talk about, we need to talk about uh, Star Wars. So um, <laughs> is it is it finally over? I mean, is it, and if so, is it good riddance to bad rubbish or, oh, we, or we, we be We've got sad? Mandalorian, we've got Baby Yoda, you know, how can you say no to yeah. that? Um, so I think they, it's too, too big a money spinner, and kids like it. You know, it's it's something that that kids, little children enjoy. So I think and, that and some of, adults. Do they do they really? Myself <laughs> maybe maybe the kids pretend to like it to please the adults. That's um, always the and case. the adults pretend because, or the adults, um, you know, they like it because the kids like it. Though secretly, you know, they can get off on it. So and maybe everyone's just pretending to like it. I don't know. Well, we need that meta narrative in our lives. Then I think. So, what, 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 what else can, can we share? Secret with ploy exposed. You know, that's why Hollywood's so shit because it's got kids to ask for something which they don't like, and and adults to supply something. You know, or at least take the kids. That's to the cinema, how which also ideology like. works. Yeah, that's it. And <coughs> um, so I don't know. Star Wars finally over. I mean, I mean, the last film was just basically, you know, a, a neat. A sort of closure without any story, you know. And um, I have to admit, I came to Star Wars quite late. Um, as 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 a child of communists growing up in Germany, I my parents actually forbade us to watch Star Wars. This is right. a true story. Too right. Uh, not, 
Because it was an imperialist kind of showing yeah. imperialist wars? Basically, or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was called Star Wars. It was American. And it was at the time when the, the Pershing rockets were mm-hmm. stationed in Germany, which were actually literally about Star Wars. They, 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 were, they were stationed in, uh, you know, around this sort of Soviet border to, to basically capture the, the, the Russian rockets that were coming and they, to shoot them off in space. Mm. So, so the, the, um, so it was at the time, and my parents said, no, you're not going to watch the Imperialist shit. <laughs> so I thought, okay. And then, so I came to it when I was like in my mid-twenties, and I must say, I never got into it. <laughs> well, but I mean, I... I, but I, I, can, I, understand, I, I can understand the, 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 mm-hmm. the, the initial idea of it, the idea of what is evil and how are we related to this. You know, the forces of good and evil and the kind of you know, I am your father, the kind of relationship that we can have with, between these two forces. And, and I think maybe... You, it, it, for me, it's like it encapsulates all, it, the, all the things that we've been criticizing, you know, the kind of the lack of moral complexity, the kind of endless <laughs> series uh, which, with no start and no end that you can just plug into. For me, Star Wars starts that. I have only ever seen one Star War. It was the very first one that came out. <laughs> you can't I didn't say like that. it. And, and all that. the rest is rubbish. And honestly, as someone, I'm, although I'm against censorship, if I'm ever in power, I'm deleting every single last reel <laughs> of it. I think it's the original sin there. Uh, and all the Marvel crap that has come out since then yeah. is the fault of Star Wars. <laughs> well, I, there's, I'm, a of, I'm, there's a lot of anger here, Alex. There's, I don't think it feels like it's not really about Star Wars at all. What it is about? It's that everyone else is having fun and enjoying a Star War or two, <laughs> and I'm excluded because it's shit. And I'm like, well, why don't you guys recognize quality and and the lack thereof? You know. Well, I mean, I, 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 I at the risk at the risk of completely <laughs> contradicting um, myself and all my earlier comments, <laughs> I I'm a, I'm a big fan of Star Wars, and I don't think it's about the moral complexity it's about you know the force it's not good versus evil it's like they're all part of the same thing that stuff is not perhaps quite so interesting it's just this um it's just this this universe which i I mean i think is uh obviously does appeal to the to, to the to the kid in me i mean i was extremely um well i just disappointed not surprised extremely geeky by the, as a child by, well, no, no, no. I mean, the so the the last three films, so seven, eight, and nine in the in the the, the Sky, Skywalker saga, it was it was shocking how they were just a remake of of numbers four, five, and six. It was very um, the amount of fan service as well in the in the um, the ninth and final one was was um, astronomical. I mean, I think so. There's a really good Mark Fisher a piece on this, which is you know attack or def- or the, this idea that Star Wars um, sold out when you know after four five and six one two and three and seven eight and nine were made he's like well no that's that's not right because star wars told us how to sell out in the first place and i do think alex you are kind of right that you know star wars started the whole um you you can't have marvel without having the star wars universe Mm. but i think there's a lot more to come we've seen the mandalorian with great music and and some some good performances um and i think it would be quite shocking if disney were were ready to to let that particular cash cow um out of their their grasp quite yet um i must say i, must say I yeah, no no about stars I, I mean i must say i did like the solo movie but i was told that's not star wars so it's a star wars story um yeah. so we could we could have a a, a, a a an overly long and quite engaged or at least from my side argument as to which is the best uh, star wars maybe it's maybe it's rogue one but um but to maybe it's to move on to rogue some one. Sorry? No, no, what's going on? Please. <laughs> I mean, I said that we shouldn't do that, and then you, you threw that in. But anyway, um, no, but Marin, I mean, to move from films which presumably all of our listeners have, have heard of to maybe some that they might not have done, were there any films which you thought were kind of criminally underseen, <laughs> underrated, something which is like... You know, because to, to, we've been maybe a little bit negative, or there's been some, some kind of um, some burst of positivity, but... Mm. To maybe to a more positive note, what, I mean, what are well, some films? That there, there's, there's loads of films I enjoyed, but all the films I enjoy, they're, they're often not, you know, very artistic or don't have a greater meaning. So I enjoy things like Jumanji. And yeah. I it's... love that. And uh, I like I liked the um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels remake with Robert Wilson, you know, what's it called? Hustle. Yeah. Hustles. Yes, and I like that. Or um, I liked... Um, and that's a good German one, actually, which is not very funny. It's called Systemsprenger, about a little girl who basically 
is so out of control that she cannot be fit into the system and how people can't deal with it. It's really upsetting. So maybe not watch that. Uh, but it is quite um, interesting. And there's a, oh, I liked Us as well. The Jordan Peele, I thought it was much better mm. than Get Out. And I thought oh, that good was quite, show. Yeah. That was really. a really interesting film about, you know, the subconscious. <laughs> And our relationship in capitalism and with the subconscious, I thought that was a really interesting film. Really good film. So yeah. maybe to maybe to kind of round it out and um, put everyone on the spot to a greater or lesser extent, you know, what was the what was the best moment? Um, we started with the worst film, but what was the best moment, the best kind of shot or the best experience watching, you know, watching a film? Because, I mean, that's the reason why we watch films, because actually, are, you know, potentially quite good. Um who, Alex, what about you? You can go first. Do it, do it alphabetically. Spot, put me on the spot. Um, yeah. Moment, like a, a cinematic moment of, of the year. Yeah. Um, Wait, I'm, are we allowed Are we allowed to spoilers then? Do we give spoilers? No. No, don't give spoilers. <laughs> Just describe <laughs> something in a way that doesn't oh, give spoilers. Because my, my picks are only at the very last five minutes of the film. So um, Yeah, mine too. <laughs> uh, no, Just I say think... the ending of film X then and don't say what that <laughs> ending is. It's not that difficult. <laughs> this is great podcasting here. No, I've got I've got an answer. But one because of my two films of the year, but you know, Bakurao and Parasite. I mean Maybe I won't speak about Bakurao because most people won't have seen it and uh, maybe the, the references are maybe too specifically Brazilian. Although, again, I would underline that it's an absolutely sensational film uh, that should be that should be watched. Um, kind of, if you like, your Tarantino-esque and, but more hallucinatory kind of 60s, early 70s style revenge flick. It's uh, definitely worth a watch. But for me, it's from, I think, Parasite. Uh, where the the family is lazy, the, the the kind of the poor family is lazing around in the rich family's house, and the um, the mother of the household uh, of the of the poor household realizes um, or makes a comment that along uh, in response to the idea that the 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 rich mother of the house is very nice is that well yes she can afford to be nice. And I thought that was quite uh, quite a good moment um, in in terms mm-hmm. of explaining class and in a way that didn't just, uh, I don't know, that was basically about social relations and not that the working class is particularly made of angels, nor that uh, the the rich are all devils or vice versa for that matter, but that um, people play roles that they are put into. And I thought that was very well exemplified in that film and, and especially so in that moment. So it didn't simplify, it didn't, it didn't moralize. I mean, so next alphabetically is, is me. Um, so I think best film moment of the year so rewatched la dolce vita um and just just absolutely brilliant i mean it's just such a fantastic film um and i think my best moment of the year was and this is definitely not to give a spoiler away but it was in uncut gems there so it's this film which is very claustrophobic and there's all people are talking over each other all the time and the camera's really close in on 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 the characters and what's happening and there's just one moment where you know it's just it's just quite shocking it's just quite unexpected what happens um and it's it's weird because it's one of these films often if you have a horror film where you have this kind of really tense environment you have kind of these intermediate shocks which give you a bit of a mini release and then build up to the big shock and that's not how this film's structured at all but there is there is like something very dramatic that happens which is um which is just extremely well done and i just uh yeah i just left the cinema thinking that was a fucking good film um so marin you you next what was your your best moment mm. of the well, year i've had several so i think the, mm. the best moment was when i honestly i came or sitting and watching um once upon a time in Hollywood, and I just thought this feels like cinema. Just basically a kind of, um, you know, absolute. I think the, the basically the meandering around Hollywood was was, was just uh, that was the moment when it hit me. I thought this is going to be good. So, and I agree with Alex that Parasite was was really interesting. And as I said, it was basically a Brecht play. Maybe this is why I like it. And because it was as joyous as Brecht, they, they could see they were having fun. It was a joyous exploration of class. And that was quite something. And um, there was something else. I can't remember. It must so, have been interesting. But... So Parasite, we've got two. I mean, this this film actually is out in, um, not even out yet in the UK. Mm. But I'm really looking forward to seeing it. 
so um phil how about you what was your best film moment of the year it was also once upon a time in hollywood but um specifically towards the end um so the kind of build-up towards the end um was i don't mind admitting i was feeling very nervous uh kind of because uh, the whole the whole story for those who haven't seen it is based around um the sharon tate murders when um charles manson's cult the family has kind of massacred um roman polanski's wife and guests who were staying at her house at the time the roman polanski was away and so it the kind of story is threaded all around that and so the build-up to it i was very nervous to um to see how tarantino predict you know known for his kind of violent his um violent cinema would portray the um portray the Manson uh, massacre and uh, you know I was getting because I'd enjoyed the movie so much so far and I thought it would be a terrible kind of um, I just didn't see how it could be reconciled with such a grim and gristly ending and so um, and sure enough it wasn't um, so the kind of there's this tremendous there is this kind of tremendously violent ending but um, uh, and it's very cathartic but in a completely unexpected way with a twist and I thought yeah. it was um, complete. It was just a fantastic ending, and such a good movie, um, such a good movie. So I mean, I saw some other good movies as well, um, and I want to give a quick shout out to them, such as Knives Out, and also even the um, mm. Midsommar, the movie about the pagan Swedish cult that kills <laughs> kills the annoying hipster kids. <laughs> but um, Once yeah. Upon a Time in Hollywood was definitely the standout film of um, of last year. Yeah, um, I've, I've no, got another one. I've, I've oh, yeah, go on. It's not a film. It's, it's like the documentary that came out about Aretha Franklin's concert that was a live recording. It's called Amazing Grace, and it was actually recorded by Sidney Pollack in this live recording in 1972. And they only released it last year because Sidney Pollack was too stupid to use clappers when he recorded it, so he couldn't put it back together in editing. And now with modern technology, they they actually could edit this film. So and it was fantastic. It's a document, basically the recording of this session, and it's beautiful. Mm. That was that was a great cinematic moment. Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, no, I, and, I, I think and any I film think... that makes fun of the Swedes, I, I'm all for that one as well. <laughs> yeah, mid Midsummer, which I I mean I personally felt it lacked it lacked a little bit of bite, but there were some brilliant. I, I, I didn't uh, like the acting bits. in it. This 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 is overacting. I thought was terrible. Sometimes you have to be satisfied if if the if the right people end up with uh, not the best things happening to them. But Alex, I think you had a point about um, documentary. Yeah, well, I mean, filmmaking, just one, which we which haven't actually not, really talked about. No, we haven't. We haven't, and maybe we should uh, do that at another point in time. But one which was nominated yeah. for best documentary in the Oscars was a film from Brazil, Petra Costa's "The Edge of Democracy," which is basically about the past five years in Brazil. And it's been, or maybe seven, uh, and it's been a very tumultuous past seven years, uh, regular <laughs> listeners will know. And mm. the the point made earlier about Hollywood maybe trying to respond to kind of the, the crumbling of the old order, but not knowing how. I mean, here's a documentary which very explicitly has to try to deal and assert a narrative over what happened. And Brazil does not agree about what the narrative is over what happened. You know, for the right, it's you had this evil socialist party in power who were very corrupt and were taking the country down the drain and the street movements came and took them out of power and now we have this other guy who's gonna sort things out you know with with guns and blood um mm. and you have the left which obviously you can imagine holds the opposite view and this this uh, documentary takes a very let's say like Workers friend, workers party friendly line. Um, it's probably too mm. uncritical of it. But the the important point that I want to make about it is precisely that how do you make a documentary when there are narrative wars going on when mm. there is no even the basic common understanding about what has happened in the past seven years and the the world that we're still living through. You don't have equivalents in the US or in the UK or anywhere in, in the West that I think quite as tumultuous as what's happened in Brazil over the past seven years and the social and political transformations that have happened. Um, so it's fascinating for its attempt to stamp its authority on that. And it's noteworthy that several kind of alt-right or libertarian groups are trying to fund their own documentaries to tell a counter-narrative mm -hmm. to this one. So, yeah, definitely one to watch. Um, but Marin, I mean, you, you know, as, as the guest, we should offer you the... 
the the last word if you if you'd like it any any anything that you're looking forward to in 2020 anything that you'd you'd predict anything that you're not looking forward to um in the the coming year of cinema um you're on you're on mute i don't know if you just, just sorry, don't want sorry. to say anything. <laughs> just no. nothing. Not looking forward to just, anything. <laughs> <laughs> just want it all to end. This is this is it. Uh, no, I think I'm 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 not scared anymore. I think what I'm what I've loved, what I've come what has come wow. back to me is yeah. it's a bravery. Like... <laughs> yes, to go just to go teach to us the how. Cinema. Yeah. Pro- project fear is over. Project fear is over. You can go to the cinema and it actually might be good. You know, and so I, that that could happen now. So I'm I'm quite happy about this. Um, I think uh, what is also happening is a kind of backlash against the kind of criticisms uh, about you know film criticisms that are based on sort of identity politics, judging films by you know as you said by their representative character, mm-hmm. you know, and completely failing to to analyze films. You know, the, this whole rage against you know these films are. Um, Sort of misogynistic. They they completely forget that that they the women are always the winners in the end. You know, in the in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is Sharon Tate who wins in the end. She is the, she's the cultural winner of this. And the same in in The Irishman. It's women who've got the last word here. So honestly, this is a kind of. I hope that this kind of criticism will. Will, will fade. Uh, people have seen it for what it is, and the, the kind of viewing numbers, and and people who give it critically acclaimed, despite all these, all the initial attempts to put these films down. Um, I, I think that this mm-hmm. this is this is what's going to happen. So, but I will wow. hope for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to win the best Oscar. Cool. Well, you know, you, you heard it here first. <laughs> Cinema in 2020, it might it might just be good. So. Um, Thanks. Thanks very much, Marin. And uh, yeah, catch you next time. Bye.